There we go. So we know why he really is. He had to get out of Dodge and Huntington and come over here. Um, no, but Eric is a fantastic teacher. I had the benefit of uh, learning under him as a high school student and then as a junior high youth leader. Um, I got to listen to Eric preach. And it was guys like Eric. I grew up in the church. I'm a pastor's son. And so I was one of the rugrats, you know, tearing up the backstage and uh, causing a scene. But... The reason I went to church, you know, originally was because be my parents made me go to church. Um, somebody brought up my dad's van. I used to go, my dad has a thing for leaving his van unlocked and the keys in the ignition out of, I don't know, some might say stupidity and some might say out of convenience, but he would always leave his keys in the van. And so I would go check in, make sure my mom saw me at church. And then I would go and sit in the van and I'd watch football. And then as soon as church, you'd hear the last song come on and come back out. Um, but then Eric comes on the scene, and I enjoyed going to church because he brought it to life. He brought fun with the, uh, with the scripture, and we had a good time. So lots of uh, good memories, but my wife and I, as you guys see there, um, we've had a heart for kids. I thought we were going to have a heart for three kids, and as soon as my daughter was born healthy, I said, okay, we're done having kids. And then AJ showed up almost on our doorstep, and uh, Bentley, kind of a similar story there too, but um, like Eric said, I work in finance, and I'll give you all of my stock tips and everything up front, buy low, sell high, that's all you need to know, uh, it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, and uh, I'll leave it there, but um, so we got involved um, with AJ and his story, and through my job, I spend a lot of time meeting with individuals, a lot of young parents, and you've got two spectrums, right? Some people are ultra-focused on retirement, and they're like, we, I want to be safe, I want to be secure, I want to make sure, I want to make sure. And then you got the spouse who's sitting there rolling their eyes like, yeah, that's all great, but we've got these kids and we've got all this stuff. And so I set out to write a book, and I made it not very academic, it's very short, and I titled it Steward from the Start. And it's kind of written in life stages. Very, very simple, not very deep. But what do we do with kids? How do we start teaching kids to be financially uh, secure? Or how do we teach them to be good stewards or make good decisions? So as I'm writing this book, and you can see there's only three kids on the cover, um, <clears throat> God decides to uh, throw a wrench in our perfect little cookie cutter plan. And AJ comes along. And his story is a unique one, and if you want the detailed version, I'd be happy to share it with you. Um, but big picture was he was not a part of the system, so he was not in foster care. Uh, his mom was clean and sober when he was born, so he, um, he never hit the system. And when we got involved, um, it was just a 30-day commitment to help mom get back on her feet and secure housing and, and some income. And she went the other direction and went back on the streets, and he needed help. So he needed serious medical help, and we were glorified babysitters with a piece of paper basically saying, you know, the smart thing you do when you leave your child with somebody else, you give him some authority. But it wasn't enough to give him the help that he needed. So we start looking into what do we do next, and private adoption was the streamlined path to getting him uh, medical help. And so we start down that path, and for the very, very first time, I was preaching on stewardship 
I was writing a book on stewardship. I was telling people that all of my money is God's money and all of my stuff is God's stuff. Yet I had never really been tested. I, you know, we'd always had just enough. We never had a lot, but we always had just enough. Um, and now we're writing uh, checks to attorneys, to social workers, to county, fill in the blank, you know, all this stuff. And my wife is all in. She's ready to go. It's done deal in her, in her eyes. And I call up the attorney and I say, you know, like, what can I expect to pay? And they, well, every case is different. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's a billable thing. It's, I say, okay, give me a ballpark. And they're like, ah, we don't like doing that because it sets expectations or whatever. So we're writing checks, and for the very first time, I felt like I was writing, I was giving God's money away. It didn't feel like ours. It didn't feel like I wasn't panicked that the checks were going to bounce or not going to bounce. It just felt like God would continue to provide and take care, and, and he really did. So that's uh, a unique part of our story. But today we're going to talk about pursuing faith in my finances, and my definition of faith in our finances means seeking God's direction, and then ordering our spending, saving, and giving in accordance with the convictions God has given us. So if we can grasp the idea that everything we have is God's, it's given to us by God, God can take it away. You know, any of us have ever felt secure, like, oh, we've, we've made it, right? We've paid off our debts, we've fill in the blank, and it's this point. God can take any of our stuff away at, at any time. And so it's not a... You know, it's, it's more a matter of waking up and saying, God, what do you want me to do with my stuff, with my time, with my talent, my treasure? Um, Eric stole a little bit of the thunder. This picture represents the absolute worst day of my life. And you can see Eric looks great. He's clean. He looks put together. Sam and I, that's my older brother, Eric talked us into this stupid mountain bike ride. <clears throat> he actually rode 10 miles further than us because he did a different course, I guess. And he's still already done ahead of us and cleaned up and looking better. But this was the dumbest decision of our life. And it started in the middle of Black Star Canyon at five o'clock in the morning. And Sam and I were the only two uh, idiots out there without a light. It was so dark, you couldn't see a hand in front of your face. Um, but because of Eric, we've done some stupid things. Um, Eric used to have hair back in the day. Um, Sam actually found these gems, and they're actually better of Robin than uh, Eric, but um, the this paint yeah. spilled right after they just like had painted the walls in the youth room or something and leftover paint. And yeah, it was up on a, that's a great picture. And I, I don't know why I haven't like used that as some sort of sermon illustration for Sam or something. <laughs> I, we were painting the, the, youth, the youth room that I used to work at, or the, you know, the church I used to work at, we had a youth room, and imagine like kind of spraying all this stuff up here black, we were doing the same thing, and I was up on a ladder doing it, and the ladder slips down the wall, and when it slipped down the wall, it hit the bucket, and the bucket just kind of whoosh, and covered me in black paint, um, which was a real wingding. So yeah, I'll, I'll, have, to, I'll have to include... Yeah, that's a great photo of... That all happened in slow motion, too. Yeah, it was just kind of like... I mean, if there was... Right. And I was fine. Like, I never got hurt or anything, because you can see I'm happy. But, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a good day in my life. <laughs> I had another great picture of Eric and I rafting. Um, some of our best memories were on the river uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, 
the other thing I forgot to mention when I, you know, Eric leaving the other church to come plant a church here as a youth pastor to a head pastor is he did things as a youth pastor when I think about sending my own kids off to church camp. That just, I mean, which is why I think I had such a great uh, junior high and high school experience. But anyways, there was a picture. My wife told me that I shouldn't show it at church because we both had our shirts off, but it was uh, in my skinnier days. Um, so pursuing faith in our finances, biblical stewardship, the, the way that I define it is the use of God-given resources, your time, your talent, your treasure, and relationships for the accomplishment of God-given goals, right? So if our goal on earth is to you know, live a life as you know, Christ-like as possible, to share the gospel, um, does our spending, does our time, does our relationships reflect that we're living out that call. And John Maxwell put it, stewardship is not just about money. It touches virtually every aspect of life, everything that God puts into your hands. And I love that last part, right, of God puts into your hands. Because nothing that we have is, is because of something that we did, right? It might feel like we earned it or it might feel like it, but God gave us the ability. God gave us the connections, the relationships, the whatever to make things happen. And if we can change our paradigm to that, everything else seems to fall into place, right? If we wake up every morning and say, God, what do you want me to do today? It might be go to a boring job because that's what's going to put food on the table for our kids. Or it might be go to, you know, serve your parents and, you know, help them do something in their house. Or it, might, it could be a lot of different things, but if, if you go into it with an attitude of, I'm doing this as unto the Lord, for the Lord, um, it just makes everything, everything better. And uh, a funny story. So think of a time you're responsible for somebody else's valuable property. Just try and picture a time where you were entrusted with something. Eric entrusted with you know, people's kids. Most of them came back from camp in one piece. Um, but we move into a new neighborhood. This was like four years ago. My daughter was two, and she hops into my older son's, one of those power wheel, you know, drive-yourself cars. And she flips this thing into reverse, and the thing just goes. And she's pretty light, so the thing moves pretty quick. And it was Lightning McQueen, so it was a little race car. had a nice little spoiler on the back. And the corner point of the spoiler, it's a nice pointy little edge, she just rams it right into the neighbor's car. And this is a neighbor that I had just met the day before. And nice guy, very outgoing, you know, he's very neighborly. And he, the first thing he tells me is how much he loves this car. It's American-made. It's whatever horsepower. It's, I mean, he's just a car guy. And twin turbos, something or other. And so, and she puts a dent, like this U-shaped dent right in the driver's door. And so I get the kids in the house. I go knock on his door. Hey, my daughter hit your car. She's only two. I was expecting this at 16, but not at two. And, uh, hey, I'll get it taken care of. I'll get a dent guy out here. And, oh, yeah, no problem. Don't worry. You know, he's like, yeah, you'll get it taken care of. No problem. So then I hire, I call around, find a dent guy, mobile dent guy. He'll come to you. He says, all I need is a garage. And my neighbor's garage was packed. And it's no problem. I say, hey, let me borrow your car for Saturday. I'm going to get your dent fixed. No problem. He takes off for the day, pulls his car in my garage. And Holly leaves. She goes to a birthday party or something. And this guy's, you know, he said it's going to be an hour. And, I'm going to meet her at the party. About an hour and a half in, I start hearing tools kind of hit the concrete floor in the garage. And uh, a few, few choice words start to fly. And so I poke my head out in the garage. Hey, sir, everything okay? 
And he's just like hands in his face. He's like, I, I should never quote a job over the phone. I say, hey, you know what? If, you know, if it's going to cost more, it's going to take more time, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll pay you whatever the job costs. And so then he's, you know, he's kind of better. And 10 minutes later, I hear more tools flying and the guy's swearing. And I'm like, stick my head, hey, sir, everything okay? And he goes, you know, this is a tough one. And he goes, I can't get to the spot I need to get to. And I say, hey, if you can't do it, just let me know. Well, you know, I'll take it somewhere else. And he, he's worried about breaking the window. He's like, oh, this is certain single pane, something. I say, hey, no problem. Like if you, and it, so he gives it a try, and he breaks the window. So now I've got a broken window, and the dent is still in the car. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Like, what am I going to do? And next thing you know, he's crying. So now I've got a broken window, a dent, and he's crying in my garage. And so I go, sir, like, hey, you know, let's figure it out. And so he knows a glass guy. He must have broken windows before. So he calls this glass guy, and he coordinates it, and the guy's going to come out and fix it. And he goes, and I'm like, hey, just, you know, let's just put a pause on the job here for now. And uh, so long story short, he, he ends up getting the dent out. The window's broken. And, and then he's still, he's crying. He starts crying again. And he goes, you know, it's going to cost me $500 to fix the window, and you're only paying me $350 for the dent. And I said, you know, so that, goes back and forth, and I, so I give him $600. And then he starts crying again because now he's made $100 even though it's going to cost him $500. And to go round and round, my neighbor rolls up on the skateboard, and he's like, oh, man, car looks good. You know, the dent's gone. And uh, I said, well, the good news is your dent's gone, and I actually got him to take another dent out of your car. The bad news is you got a broken window. And it goes back and forth, and neighbor's cool. He's like, oh, no problem. They'll take care of it. He goes to back the car out of the garage, and the guy had jacked the car up just like a half inch off the ground, so he couldn't really tell that it was jacked up, but just enough to get the front tire off. And I, I see it at the last second, right, as he's about to reverse out, and I tell him, stop, and it would have ripped the whole oil pan off the car. So horrible situation, lots of tears, lots of, you know, not unexpected, but I just, I, I felt helpless, right? I couldn't fix the car. It's not mine. It's in my possession. A window is now broken. Um, and it just it didn't feel good. And you know, then when I relate that to you know, all of the things that God's entrusted me with, and you know, think of your car. Or your, is there anything that you've owned longer than sometimes a couple of weeks or months or years that you really care about? Right? There's very little. Right? You get so excited for that new car and couple kids throw up in it or you spill some few crackers the next thing you know it's just the car right um, and so the way that we live out stewardship is we've got to be anchored in something right and if we're if we put our hope in things of this world it's going to fail us right every single time people will fail us stuff will fail us um, the only thing that will hold us together or keep us in place is anchoring ourselves in Christ. Christ is the only thing that is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and the only thing that will keep us centered, keep us focused, keep us headed in the right direction. And so in order to be, avoid being swept away by the currents and winds of this broken world, right? And if you look out there today, it feels pretty broken. Um, Christ is the only thing that will keep us centered and keep us anchored. And... Um, when I look around the world and raising kids and you know, trying to navigate life as a, an adult, I'm glad that Jesus never changes, right? I mean, there's, there's nothing that feels better than that. 
when we look around and see the division or the disagreement or relationships or anything out there that's just imploding, uh, I'm certainly glad that Christ is in control. And, uh, and Christ, in that, right, as a Christian, we're called to be in this world, but not of this world, right? So we're, we're here to present a new idea. We're here to present the gospel. We're here to share Christ's love with others, to go against the flow, right? And sometimes going against the flow is going to be hard, you know, because we're a Christian doesn't mean that the walk, the life is going to be easy. Um, but drifting, drifting is easy, right? If our natural tendencies are just to drift, right? Sometimes we throw the anchor. You know, my neighbor was, he had a boat, so I thought he was a boater, but he was just a regular person that owned a boat. And we go out and, you know, we're having lunch and he throws the anchor. And next thing you know, we're playing bumper boats with another boat. And like, he's like, hey, I, I threw the anchor. Yeah, you threw the anchor way over there, but the anchor wasn't set. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it didn't take hold, right? It was just maybe skimming across the bottom or who knows, the rope might not have been long enough to, to get it into the ground. So just because we throw the anchor or just because we are holding on to a few things doesn't prevent us from drifting. And in our finances, you know, it's easy to drift into debt, right? It's easy. You don't have to do anything. You just don't care. Don't worry about it. And more than likely, you will be spending more than you make. And next thing you know, you're in debt. In relationships, if, you're, uh, if you care about your marriage, you can't just do nothing to continue to stay in that relationship. It takes intent. It takes effort. It takes uh, sacrifice. It takes love and compassion and going out of your way. So you can't just drift into anything good. Um, and I love this quote at the bottom. It says, a dead fish can swim downstream, right? Anybody can just go with the flow, and, uh, but it takes, it takes something different in us to, uh, uh, and Christ in us to go against the flow and go against the grain. And Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light shine before men that they may see their good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And so my picture that I see when we talk about avoiding the drift and just floating along in life and just kind of letting culture influence us or letting what the world says is okay or not okay, in order to really stand apart and let our light shine, we've got to hold convictions so tightly that we're willing to say, no, that's not right. right? And when society is just going in one direction, it's just easy right, just to go with the flow, or oh, that's okay, or we'll let that slide. And, and you look at uh, uh, movies, right? When, back in, when I was younger, a, a PG-13 movie had a set of standards, and today a PG-13 movie might let a whole lot more slide than they would have you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so you can just see cultures you know, getting numb, right? Just kind of drifting towards whatever feels good, and from a marketing perspective, right, when we bring it back to finances, what's the marketer's job? They convince you that you need a product or a service, right? And so the good ones make you think no matter what, whether you can afford it or not, credit card companies are the greatest. Uh, they influence you by, you know, you deserve X. You deserve this trip. You deserve that thing you need. You deserve a bike. You deserve a whatever. And... Whether you can afford it or not, they've convinced you that you deserve something and they've given you a ticket or a way in order to accomplish that. 
and you pay for it later, right? And so Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when we ask ourselves, how do we steward? How do we make decisions? How do we decide what God wants us to do with our time and our resources and our, and our money? And it starts with the word, right? Everything that we need is given to us through Christ and through the word of God. And so when we look at the power that we hold in this book alone, right? How often do we start here, right? I know me personally, right? When it's, when there's a financial trouble, I'm not like, oh, I should go read my Bible and figure it out, right? It's like I'm a fixer. I gotta, I gotta go do something, right? I gotta be productive. Um, but how often are we turning, you know, and looking and asking and, uh, and seeking that advice and that wisdom that's all given to us freely? And uh, I was listening to a sermon the other day, and he used an illustration where he goes, Genesis, the first two chapters in Genesis, right? One and two, this is including index and title pages and all that, right? But this much of the Bible was in the Garden of Eden where everything was perfect, right? And then in Revelation, the last two chapters in Revelation, similar in size, you know, let's being generous here, but maybe that much. But all of this in between, right? Sin enters the world in chapter three, and then all of this is dealing with sin and destruction and doubt and disbelief and you name it right and then Jesus or Christ shows up and fulfills what many were longing for for a long long time or they they are freed from exile in Egypt right and they're no longer slaves and how long until they start complaining how long until they're not satisfied or it's not enough right it's like wait a minute we just brought you out of slavery and you're back here again, complain, right? So the entire middle section with both ends being very, very small represent perfection and ultimately what we're looking forward to in heaven. And if you don't believe that God is in control and has formed you for a purpose, you will flounder on the high seas of purposelessness, drowning in the currents and drifting further into nothingness. Right? All you have to do to drift is nothing. It's, it's nothing. The absence of intentionality, there's drift, right? So if we're not intentional in our relationships, if we're not intentional with our finances, if we're not intentional with our parenting, if we're not fill in the blank, it's just drifting into nothingness. And our default setting is to drift. You want to be unhealthy? Just don't care, right? It's easy to be unhealthy. It's hard to, you know, to be healthy. It's hard to prepare your own food and to grocery shop or I can go down the street and get fast food and it's done. Uh, it's hard to mend relationships. Um, all those things are hard. In Hebrews 2, it gives us the warning, we must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore the great so great a salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, 
and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That first sentence, right? We must pay attention. We must be pay most careful attention. Therefore, what do we have heard? Right? It's not a it's not a just kind of meander our way through this life and all will be okay. Right? We've got to be on guard. We've got to be alert and we've got to stand sometimes when it's hard to stand and we've got to make tough decisions that might not satisfy, you know, that that instant uh, gratification that we're, we'll get to in a second here. And then Proverbs 3, 6, right? In all our ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight, right? It's how often are we starting the day in submission to God? So money, money has a bad rap in our society, right? It, money is a tool. Um, money itself is not good or bad, right? The love of money, it can be bad, but money itself is not necessarily good or bad. It's simply a tool the Lord gives us for use to help further his kingdom. Satan, right, chapter 3, comes in, enters the world, and twists the scriptures telling us that money is the root of all evil. And he would want us to ignore our finances until we are hopelessly married in debt. And that's the case for the majority of you know, people in this country is you, we see it all the time, and the statistics are terrible, right? There's the average person, six out of ten people in the United States, doesn't have $1,000 as an emergency you know, savings that they can go tap in an emergency. Six in ten, right? And so many people living paycheck to paycheck, just getting by, yet the lie out there is that money is the root of all evil, right? So anybody who's pursuing money or... But that's what Satan wants us to believe. Don't pay attention to your finances. Don't pay attention to your relationships. Don't pay attention to that stuff. Do what makes you feel good, you know, right? And then money is also a test. In Luke 16.10, it says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So money is not necessarily bad or good. It's a tool and it's a test. And when we talk about um, tithing, for example, I've heard, you know, a thousand different arguments for, against, whatever, you know, God doesn't really need my money, I don't have any money, you know, fill in the blank, but tithing, that's, you know, that's one of the areas of the Bible where God says to test him, and I believe it's the only part in the Bible where God asks, you know, test me in this, and when I first got married, my wife, you know, our first Sunday driving to church together, you know, she says, did you bring your checkbook? Oh, I forgot it at home. <laughs> forgot it at home. And, and we were living, uh, she was in school. I was, you know, we we're just barely making enough. And she said, well, turn around, go get it. I'm like, oh, we'll get it next week. You know, God can wait. And she said, no, go get it. And so from that day, you know, she said, you know, she took the stand and said, we're going to do this. And so we did. And along our journey, uh, a couple points stand out. We uh, worked for a small business. We had a high deductible insurance plan. And so a uh, son born with uh, medical needs, we quickly hit that max out of pocket. And it was August. He was born 2014. The first round of medical bills came due to the tune of about $10,000. And three weeks after that bill came and was about to be due, I got a bonus at work almost to the penny. 
I mean, wiped out the build entirely. Um, another time at the church, a couple that we knew casually, their kids were part of the youth group, and uh, he handed me a check and just said, God wanted me to give you this. Wiped out the next medical bill, right? And so God has continued to show up and provide AJ's adoption story, start writing checks, and none of them bounced, right? They just, it was a lot of money, and it just kept going and going, and God provided, and he showed up. The oldest trick in the book, anybody ever asked, did God really say? I can re- distinctly remember, you know, being in junior high and high school and, you know, and Eric would be preaching and, you know, and the questions that were asked, right, was where's the line, right? Like between good and evil, right and wrong, like, ah, oh, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm dating my, my girlfriend and what is the, you know, is it here or here? right? And we always want to know where the line was. And, and the lie, right? Did God really say? Did God really say? And it's the favorite tool of the enemy, right? He prowls, the enemy prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. You think God wants to devour the guy who's drifting? I mean, excuse me, you think Satan wants to devour the guy who's drifting? He's already got him. He doesn't need him. Satan wants to devour somebody who's committed, someone who's intentional, someone who's on the right track trying to bring others into the path. And he's roaring around like a lion seeking to devour that person. And it's easy. You know, all he has to do is start getting you to doubt and question. How easily are we swayed to doubt God's word? Did God really say I didn't, you know, I can't serve God and money? Did God really say he commands me to forgive all who wrong me? Did God really say not to sin in my anger? Um, the both serve God, uh, both God and money line. I mean, we do that on a daily, daily basis, right? Did did God really say that? You know, we should be tithing. Did God really say that we should be helping others in need? Did God really say? And we kind of, you know, can we can convince ourselves one way or the other? Um, did God really say do everything for His glory? Did God really say all money is really His money? Did God say not to invest in immoral industries like abortion or pornography, right? And indirectly or directly. Uh, being financially disciplined in an undisciplined society may be the hardest task that we face today, right? When we look at government spending, right? If you look, you know, as the government to our guide, I'm not sure I want my kids following the lead of just spending frivolously, right? And that goes all the way back to being anchored and Christ, and following Christ's example, if we get caught up trying to follow the leaders or the experts or the whomever, they're going to let us down, right? You think in our industry, in the financial industry, there's, there's crooks that have hit the headlines that everybody would know their names because they got, on a, they got off on the wrong path. And maybe they didn't start on the wrong path. Maybe they're doing what they thought was right, and eventually, right, a, a little slip-up happens, little sin creeps in, and next thing you know, it turns into a massive Ponzi scheme or something, right? So being financially disciplined in an undisciplined society. Two things I'm going to hit on here, and then we'll wrap it up. Delayed gratification versus instant gratification. And to tee it all off, momentary feelings will always try and convince us to forfeit our faithfulness, right? Momentary feelings. That instant gratification, right, of, yeah, just this one time or just this month 
or just, 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 and we start feeling, you know. So delayed gratification is the willingness and ability to sacrifice immediate desires in order to achieve a future benefit. A person's ability to delay gratification relates to the similar skills such as patience, impulse control, self-control, and willpower, all of which are involved in self-regulation. And all of those, right, if we go back to the fruit of the Spirit, right, love, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, those all are factors in delayed gratification or, or components of delayed gratification. Versus the inverse, instant gratification is often used to label satisfactions gained by more impulsive behaviors choosing now over tomorrow. And so we'll dive through. I, uh, I come from Seaside where John is big on the bullet points, the fill in the blanks, and whenever Eric preached, I think he intentionally didn't do fill in the blanks. So I filled them in for you. I, did, I, I went in between. He's totally up fine to cry in here because I'm makes me feel at home. Um, instant gratification is self-centered. Self-centered, right? And when we look at the life of Christ, self-centered is probably not a good characteristic or a trait that we're looking to achieve. It's a mindset that's completely focused on me, not sparing thought or concern for the needs and desires of others. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking at our own interest, but each of you in the interest of others. So instant gratification zeroes in, focus on me. Instant gratification is also pleasure-driven, right? It's an aim to fulfilling desires of the flesh, ignoring the spirit. And Romans 8, uh, verse 5, it says, Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. Back to Eric's prayer earlier, right? It's God's will be done, not my will be done. Instant gratification, very difficult to live in a God's will be done mentality. And then instant gratification is pride-powered. And it feeds on the desire to maintain control over my life circumstances, demanding what I want and when I want it, right? It's, it's living life like this, right? I can control, I can do, it's me, me, me. And how often do we see that crumble, right? It might work for a little while. We might be able to hold on to things very tightly, do it our way, amass a lot of wealth. You know, we, uh, there's a famous, in our industry, there's a famous kind of picture of Steve Jobs, who was the founder of Apple, and he's in his late stages with his cancer battle, and he's got major regrets. He had all the money in the world, and, you know, he was one of the wealthiest people on the planet, and he couldn't save himself, right? He, he withered and, and died, and, you know, all of that buildup, all of that, you know, everything he put into that, and he gets to a point where somebody's taking care of him and his body is, is attacking itself and he can't stop it. He can't throw enough money at it to stop it. So pride comes before the fall. Um, we've all heard it. Proverbs 16, 5, it, it says, The Lord detests the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Um, you know, pride, in, in today's day and age, we see it everywhere, but pride is so destructive, right? It is so destructive, and it, it never leads to a good outcome, right? I mean, I can think, I 
often I, as my kids are now in sports and starting to, you know, dream of playing here and there and, you know, they've got their college aspirations, they've got their, their uh, NFL and MLB, whatever aspirations. And it makes me think of high school and I was not the star athlete, as you might uh, have guessed otherwise, but I was not a great athlete. But the kids who were, you know, the star quarterback, the star whatever, most of them have just floundered ever since. They kind of went on kind of to college and, you know, they had all of this going for them. They could care less about school. They were so good and just kind of praised in this one area of life. And then they've just kind of floundered, right? They haven't, as that earlier slide, right, they just kind of floated along the sea purposelessly, you know, just kind of whatever life took them. Um, but the people who had to work hard, the people who weren't naturally gifted, um, you know, those characteristics carried them beyond the sport or beyond the whatever that they were working at. I'm also not a teacher, and I know this goes against everything a teacher says, putting so much onto one slide, but it's there for you. Um, spiritual implications of delayed gratification. So instant gratification, is it leads to impulse buying, debt, and buyer's remorse. And delayed gratification leads um, time for you to ask God and listen for his answer, right? And if we start there every single time, it would be a much, much easier path. And when we look at, um, I counsel people all the time, right, where they're, you know, a car purchase. Well, you know, I can afford this payment or I can afford this. Okay, well, let's break it down, right? You can afford, for simple math, say it's $500 a month for a $50,000 car that they need, right? And so I say, okay, well, how long does it take to save $50,000, right? I mean, let's say you're a good saver and you can save $2,000 a month, right? That's two years worth of savings to get to $50,000 if you're able to save $2,000 a month. Now it's picture two, or two years worth of saving diligently and now you've got $50,000 cash in your hand trying to visualize that and now hand it over at the car dealer and walk away with your car paid for in cash, right? It's a lot harder than just saying, I can afford a $500 a month payment for the next eight years of my life, right? That's, it might feel easier. I get it now. That I, it's here and now. But if you just diligently saved for two years or three years and you've acquired $50,000 in cash, you might be like, I don't know, that used one is not, you know, I'd rather give away half of this stack than give it all away, right? So, um, but that's what delayed gratification gives you time to process and time to, um, from a, a worldly level. On a spiritual level, when we look at delayed gratification, salvation. While salvation brings immediate freedom from the power of sin, the promise of our eternal heavenly home is yet to be fulfilled, right? Where we've got instant, immediate freedom over sin, but the promise is, is out in the future, right? And when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith and confidence is what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, right? So that's that salvation, right? We, we're, we're now free from the power of sin today, but our hope is in that eternal, you know, heavenly, uh, that promise of heaven in the future. <clears throat> chapter Hebrews 11, chapters 13 through 16. <clears throat> this is, uh, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, 
They only saw them and welcomed them from distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and He has prepared a city for them. So Abraham and Sarah, they had their faith in this promise that they would never live to see, right? The Messiah coming, yet that was many years beyond their life here on earth. But they held on to that faith, that the eternal, that, that salvation that was to come, despite not being able to tangibly see it. And delayed gratification speaks to heart desires, right? The condition of our heart is revealed by our willingness or lack of the, the ability to wait on God's timing, right? How, how many times have we, you know, rushed things or made decisions because we just couldn't wait on God anymore? Just compromise, you know, take the easy way out. Um, yeah, I, I believe God, but uh, I'm just going to take control of this one because I can't, I can't wait any longer. And so oftentimes, you know, you know, show me your, we used to say your check register, your checkbook, but show me your credit card statement and we'll show you where your heart's at, right? We'll see <coughs> how you spend your money and what you're willing to sacrifice or what you're willing to give up. We talked about this earlier, but uh, godly character, qualities like patience, diligence, willingness, work hard, point to the importance of delayed gratification, James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I don't know about you guys, but I don't like that verse. Right? It is not a, <clears throat> it's not the feel-good verse. To consider it pure joy, you're going to face trials. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean the path is going to be easy. <clears throat> just because you've got God on your side doesn't mean it's going to be beautiful and simple. It means it's going to be harder. You're going to be swimming upstream. You're going to be swimming against a society that says you're crazy, you're weird, you're out of this. You know, you're out of your mind. Um, daily trust, delay gratification, exemplifies your daily trust. The Bible is full of admonitions to wait on the Lord, but it doesn't mean we sit around. You know. Twiddling our thumbs, waiting on the Lord. It means we get to work. <clears throat> we maintain an attitude of patient expectancy, knowing that God's work is being done, but He's called us here to work, and He's put us here for a purpose, and we've got to find that purpose and then live out that purpose, right? And I couldn't preach <clears throat> at Eric's church without finding a way to work Isaiah 40, 31 in there. But it says... But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not go weary. And they will walk and not be faint. And then the expanded version out of the message, it says, Why would you ever complain, O Jacob, or whine Israel, saying, God has lost track of me. He doesn't care what happens to me. Don't you know anything? Haven't you been listening? God doesn't come and go. God lasts. He's creator of all. You can see or imagine. He doesn't get tired, doesn't pause or catch his breath. He knows everything inside and out. He energizes those who get tired, gives fresh strength to the dropouts. For those young people tire out and drop out, young folk in their prime stumble and fall. But those who wait upon God get to full, fresh strength. They spread their wings and soar like eagles. They run and don't get tired. They walk and they don't lag behind. 
So when we look at <clears throat> that, that patience, right, that so much of financial peace, freedom, whatever you want to call it, is, is patience, right? It's that delayed gratification. It's something better in the future by waiting. Um, and then last, God's order. You're probably familiar, you know, we, weep, we reap what we sow. And what comes between the reaping and the sowing? Waiting, right? Waiting, waiting, sometimes more waiting. Um, but farming requires hard work and a willingness to wait, right? You've got to prep the soil. You've got to plant the seed. And then there's a period of waiting and waiting for that reward. And in Galatians 6, 7 through 9, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please from the Spirit, from the Spirit they will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So, so much about what we're talking about is, is that patience and that ability to sit back and let God work. And not sit back in a sense of not do anything, but... Sometimes it feels like we're idle. Sometimes we have to be still and listen. And how can we listen and hear God and His call and what He wants you know, for us or from us if we're so busy doing, right? And, and oftentimes, right, the devil, if he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. That term's been used a lot. How often is sometimes we're, we're just doing so many things that aren't bad things, but are we doing anything of eternal value, right? Where, you know, Sometimes with sports, right? With kids' sports, we've got three kids right now. We we made the mistake in the fall where we let them play two sports at the same time, and there was no there was no benefit. It's not going to help them get further in their sports careers. The only thing it did is add chaos and confusion and you know and busyness that didn't leave margin for better things, right? And then and from a financial aspect, right? If we have no margin, you know, or, or debt, one of the, uh, the examples that I like to use, when, especially when I'm talking to young people, right, student loan debt is a big one that I get asked about a lot. And I've got a great example. I've got a, a young man whose brother asked him to come sit with me because he just felt like his brother was kind of following family suit but didn't have any passion drive for it. So I was a Vanguard grad, or am a Vanguard grad, and this young man was looking to go to Vanguard and kind of just follow his brother's footsteps and so he just wanted me to speak to him. He comes in three days away from moving in uh, his freshman year, and he, he sits down in my office and says, hey, why do you want to go to Vanguard? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, oh, you move in in three days. You don't have, like, anything that you're excited for? I'm like, oh, that sounds good. My brother went there. I'm like, okay, that's a reason. I'm like, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? He's like, I want to go to Boulder. Okay, how come you didn't go to Boulder? He's, I didn't apply. Well, Okay, well, if you don't apply, you're not going to get in. That's step one. Um, I said, well, how are you going to pay for it? Because I knew his family situation. He goes, oh, I got it all figured out. I went down to the student loan, you know, financial aid office, and I got some loans. And I'm like, okay, what are the numbers? He's like, I'm not really sure. I'm like, oh, pull them out, right? So he pulls them out. And I said, okay, so it looks like you're going to borrow $115,000 to complete your career here at Vanguard. And he opens his eyes like, oh, that sounds like a lot. I'm like, that is a lot of money, right? And then, well, how are you going to pay for it? I don't know. I'm going to get a job. Okay, well, you're going to be on the hook for about $1,500 a month from the day you graduate or six months after the day you graduate for the next decade. 
I said, how much money do you make right now? He's like, oh, well, about $700 a month. I said, okay, well, do you want to live at home? Oh, do you want to drive a car? Yes. You know, all these steps, right? But he was willing at the time to take on that debt, not knowing what he was really getting himself into. But what, what power was that debt going to have over his life, right? What if he went to Vanguard, fell in love with a girl who had her heart set on becoming a missionary in a third world country? Who's going who's gonna to support their missionary funding and efforts, you know, in addition to the 1500 bucks a month that he's got to cover, you know, in student loan debt, right? So debt has the ability to limit, you know, your, your opportunities or what you're able to do. And so if we're running excessive debt in any area of our life, now we've got, you know, that's where the can't serve God and money deal, right? Because first priority, we've got to pay off that debt before we have the margin to respond to where God could be calling us. Not to say that God couldn't wipe it out. God couldn't come in and say, I want you to do this so bad that someone's going to come in and wipe out your student loan debt. But debt now has a sense of control over their lives. So I'm going to read uh, this illustration that I thought was pretty powerful. Um, in regards to sea glass, so my family and I love to collect sea glass. And this is probably 10 plus years worth of just finds, and I'm a treasure hunter. Um, it's not necessarily worth anything, but it's memories maybe. Um, but this illustration about sea glass, I think fits perfectly. So we'll close in this. In the midst of debt, a job loss, financial hardships, it's easy to feel like broken glass. Sharp, irreparable shards shattered all over the place. People who try to help can easily get cut or wounded. Do not despair, no matter the situation you find yourself in. Many years before the advent of recycling and available landfills, trash, including glass, was disposed. It was just thrown in the ocean. All of those sharp-edged shards of glass were slowly refined into beautiful sought-after treasure some 20 to 50 years later, right? So most of this, in order for it to get soft and kind of discolored and, or the color enhanced, that's minimum of probably 20 years to really take away those hard edges. But many of them even longer. The glass is smoothed and its rough edges are softened while the color and texture are enhanced. It travels with the currents and is tossed by the waves. It rubs with the rocks and coarse sand until it has been transformed from broken glass to treasured sea glass. It washes up on a different beaches only to be pulled back into nature's giant tumbler until one day it found and cherished by someone who truly appreciates its rich history, value, and beauty. Like sea glass, our stewardship or our financial journeys are long and can be very challenging at times. There will be times of peace and great joy, times where we feel as if we're being scraped against the rocks, tossed in the waves, and dragged by the changing tides. If we approach each decision with a focus on stewarding resources that are not ours and making a better decision after a failure, we will be refined and made more beautiful day after day. We're not defined by our past, whether good or bad, yet God can certainly use our past to masterfully shape us and grow us. Like sea glass, it is not defined by its broken, original broken state, but it does play a role in what it has become today. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And so as we go today, let's think, you know, let our lives be shaped by the decisions you made, not by the decisions that we didn't. Right? We all have the opportunity to make decisions, good or bad. Let's be prayerful. Let's start asking God, you know, what do you want us to do? And let our decisions be, our lives be shaped by those decisions that we made. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity, Lord, this morning to share your words. And uh, may them be received. And may each and every one you know, listening today take something away that, that you've spoken to them, Lord. And whether through your word or through individuals, Lord, we just pray that your word touches their heart. Help us to implement changes, Lord, that we feel that you're calling us to make. <coughs> let, us, let us make wise decisions, Lord, with all that you've entrusted us with. May we view everything that we have as yours. And may our decisions be shaped by, uh, by that calling and that, and that stewardship responsibility that you've placed on our hearts. Um, be with each and every one of these families. And just may today be a special day, Lord, where they get to experience you in a new and different way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bring it home. So normally we do a little discussion afterwards and in lieu of that, I think I, I just had a couple of questions that I have written down that I think would be really helpful. Um, but before I do the questions, I want to just make two comments on your sermon. Number one, I'm thinking during the sermon, tell me what to do with my money. As if you're some sort of a Dave Ramsey guru and you're just going to come up here and magically make me more money. And what I really appreciated about your sermon was it wasn't that. It was more of just kind of a, a, just a recentering on kind of biblical foundations, just Christian principles of our relationship between money and ourselves. So... Again, the whole time I was like, come on, Dave Ramsey, let's get, let's get after it. Like, I want to make some more money here. And I was struck at the very end. It's just like, no, it was just, Eric, just turn your eyes towards the scripture. Turn your eyes towards Christ. Pay attention in that area. And let that kind of almost trickle down. Let that anchor you again back to where you want to go. So that's my first comment. And on that comment, yeah. the, the Bible talks about money. I think there's like 2,300 times it mentions money or possessions. And more than anything else that it references in the Bible. So it's certainly a topic to pay attention to, right? When things are repeated, you know, they're trying to get the reader to, to pay attention to something. But it's not a recipe. The Bible doesn't have a recipe to make money or to, you know, it's in essence, you could say to be rich, you know, is to be filled with the Spirit of God, right? And so it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much money you make. It matters what we do with what we have. And so, yes, there's practical ways. And, you know, if you subscribe to Dave Ramsey's principles, many of which I agree wholeheartedly with, that'll put you on a better path. But financial freedom doesn't come from a certain number, right? How many times have we thought, if I just got this promotion, if I just made a little bit more, and in the last decade... I've continuously made a little bit more and it hasn't changed my life, right? It hasn't, you know, if I thought if, you know, when I was first married, I thought if I made $100,000 a year, we would be just killing it. And, you know, it came and my life didn't change, 
right? I think I had 10 times more liabilities at that point in time or whatever. So it's not a, we, we so often trick ourselves into thinking if I just fill in the blank, everything else gets easier, right? If we just, you know, certainly money, an excess money can certainly make things easier. But, you know, if you look statistically, people who didn't earn money, if they inherited money, most of it's gone in the first generation. It doesn't even survive a generation. Um, you know, lotto winners are usually bro or bankrupt before, you know, too long. So it's not a matter of what's the prescription to more. It's really if you align yourself, you know, you can look at the parable of the talents, right? It wasn't, we're not designed just to hide what we have and stick it under the mattress because we're so fearful of losing it. That's, that's just as wasteful as the guy who's out, you know, frivolously spending, so. Yeah, yeah no, that was helpful for, for me to kind of, again, frame money and, and like that. So my two questions would be to you is, I mean, obviously your job as a financial advisor, you've been doing this now for about the past 10, 12 years. 14, yeah. Four, oh, geez, 14. Um, I would say maybe, maybe frame one of these two questions. You just kind of sit down with somebody who's new, and assume, let's assume that they're a believer. Let's assume that they put their heart and, and their trust in the Lord. And they, they not only are looking for financial advice, but how do I do this in light of the gospel? And then what what is kind of like maybe just kind of that advice? I mean, I know your sermon was, was part of that. Or maybe you could even talk about one of the biggest mistakes that you see when, when people, when you kind of meet with people the first time. Yeah, so those two questions, are the answer is the same. And the first thing we start is taking inventory. Take inventory of what you have, what your debt and obligations are, and what your income are. And the biggest mistake that most people make is they don't want to know. They know it's not good usually. They're like, ah, our finances aren't great. and so, But they don't want to do the work to find out how bad it really is, right? Or sometimes they think it's bad and it's not necessarily bad, just maybe a few tweaks and it could be better. But So oftentimes, you know, step one is just take inventory of what you have, what's coming in, what's going out. And once you're aware of it, it's a whole lot easier to solve the problem, right? If there is a problem. Or if there's no problem, then, you know, sometimes you just confirm that you're on the right path. But sometimes it's like, okay, and then, so once you take inventory of what's coming in and what's going out, then it's easy to say, well, what do we need? Do we need to be paying for this, this, and this? You know, sometimes it's, you know, cut the cable bill, and then it's cut this, cut that. And sometimes you have to make hard decisions. I sat with somebody, and they... You know, they're, ah, uh, you know, I'm not willing to give up this. Okay, well, then you, if you're not willing, then you don't care about the problem enough to address the problem. That's, you know, that's one thing, too. So start there. And then the recipe to, you know, financial success or wealth building, it's steady plotting, right? Can somebody get rich overnight? Can you put all your money in Bitcoin 10 years ago and make a lot of money? Certainly, there's always ways that, you know, easy come, easy go, but it is possible. But the wealthiest people didn't get rich typically overnight. And most of them came from nothing and, you know, they, they worked hard and they built something or they created something or whatever. But it's the people that spent less than they made consistently for a long period of time, save a little. I mean, the biblical principle, right? You save a little, give a little, and then use the rest for your current obligations. Do that over time and... That's, I mean, the, the majority of our wealthiest clients never did anything special. They didn't create something that made them, they just put a little bit away for a long period of time. And uh, a friend or a client who's now retired, but he spent 40 plus years in ministry, never making 
a six-figure salary. And he's now retired, and he's making more money in retirement than he's ever made because somebody grabbed a hold of him in his 20s and told him to put just a little bit away and for a long period of time and invested appropriately. And now he's in his mid-70s making more money than he ever did you know, as an employed person. So. All right, last question. Um, and I think you kind of, actually you kind of might have addressed this. So, so maybe there's something additional that you'd want to say about this because I, I think this, you, you addressed, let me ask a question. For someone who is in debt, you talk about six out of 10 people yep. are, you know, only have like less than a thousand dollars. So we got to assume that, I, I don't have to assume that somebody in this room is on less than a thousand dollars, but the chances are that people are living pretty tight. Something practical, another practical step. Again, I think you kind of address this with the taking inventory, what do we need, kind of steady plotting. Is there anything else that when you see somebody who's in debt that you kind of say you address like a practical step or something in, in those terms? The, the best way to get out, right, is to kind of start with the end in mind, right? Picture, you know, I've, I've seen everything from, you know, just balance transferring credit card to credit card to credit card. And, you know, introductory rates or no payments for six months or, you know, there's every trick in the book is out there. And never once is somebody living in that state peaceful or content. It just, it doesn't feel good when something's being held over your head or you've got this liability. So the best way to do it is to take it serious, just to really look at it and say, I want this gone because it's not making me feel good and it's not enriching my life but you've got to be willing to take the practical steps to do it right it's hard to get out of debt right because when 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 you introduce debt in addition to everything else that has to be paid right so you've got your ongoing you got your rent or your mortgage or your food or your car whatever like all of the must-haves in order to operate and then in, on top of all of that you've got paying down the debt Right? So it's, some, it's money that's already been spent. You might have not even have the product anymore or whatever. It's gone. And so it's, it's hard to motivate yourself to get rid of it. So you got to take it serious and then try and picture what you would feel like at the end right? when, you're, when it's gone. And that's why Dave Ramsey's kind of word debt-free scream. People are legitimately screaming because they've got this excitement of this is now no longer has a stronghold in my life. So. That's helpful. And I was thinking about that not only in terms of Right. A synonym for one another. So yeah. You have to take it seriously. Think of the end of mind. Take the real practice. And, 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 yeah, and, and sin is a great example of, you know, of something having a stronghold in your life, right? And there, when there's things that we struggle with, how much better do we feel when we are able to eliminate them, right? And just, you know, alcoholism. Right? I'm raising two boys who, uh, whose parents struggle with drugs and alcohol. And to see one of them, who we just got reacquainted with, AJ's birth dad, who's been sober now for about a year, to see the joy in his eyes to have overcome, you know, and we just continue to pray that he fights that battle ongoing. Um, but it's significant. That's great. Uh, I think that's all I got, man. And, and again, Rob will hang out for a little bit afterwards if you want to ask him. Stock tips, cryptocurrency. Buy low, sell high. If anybody wants a copy of my book, I've got a stack of them. 
helpful little tidbits, raising kids, uh, all the way through retirement. So. Thanks, man. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. All right, Mr. Brian. Songs, we'll do the Eucharist, and I don't need to like cliche the Eucharist.